Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast by and for trial lawyers looking for better ways to serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Hi, this is John Simon. This is Eric Veith. Welcome back to The Jury Is Out. Today we're going to continue our discussion of Vordire, and today we're going to talk about addressing important or significant issues in your case. Everything boils down to the statute, right, as far as Vordire. When you're addressing issues in the case, is that appropriate or is that not appropriate? To what extent is it appropriate? Well, we go back to the statute again, 494.470. It says, no person shall sit as a juror if they've formed or expressed an opinion concerning the matter or any material fact that may influence their judgment as a juror. Well, how would you know unless they know what those issues are? There's a school of thought says that you shouldn't condition or you're not allowed to condition. I don't look at it as conditioning. I look at it as introducing and exploring very important factual issues. How can you find out whether or not they have strong feelings about certain issues in the case if you can't explore those issues with the panel? And so you're not really conditioning. What you're doing is you're getting views on both sides of a particular issue. I'll give you an example of that. If you have a case where we have a product case getting going to trial and one of our claims is that the manufacturer of the product didn't do adequate testing. That's something you need to explore. Some people think companies test their products adequately, or some people feel like you don't need to test the products. But just to explore that issue, the same with warnings. Some people, in my experience, have taken the position that no matter what you put, people don't read warnings, warnings don't work. Well, obviously, that's something that you need to find out if you have a warnings case. If you have a medical malpractice case involving a, a doctor that's not listening to the patient, didn't take a particular history I think it's important for both sides to find out if anybody on that panel has had a similar experience. Have they felt like their doctor listens to them or spends enough time? Or are there some people feel like your doctors do not spend enough time? These are issues that both sides are going to want to know what the panel thinks about those issues. There's a gravity to all this, of course. And we, we've talked about this in previous podcasts. What if only one juror who's in the final 12 was not asked about how they lean on a particular issue. The court decisions have made it clear that even one person who's inappropriately there can contaminate the entire jury. It's a complex adaptive system back there and all kinds of things can happen. And the first person that speaks up, you know, might cause some groupthink and cause everybody to lean one way. So it has to be done and it has to be done somewhat thoroughly to make sure that you're dealing with neutrality or else the whole trial is a charade, and then you just, you just lost a case that you should not have lost. Especially if you have a bad issue or a tough issue in your case, you have to bring it up during Vordire. There is no question. Bring it out in the open. Get it out in the room. Get everybody talking about it. Ask them what they think about it, what they feel about it. Uh, examples, a client with a prior felony conviction. We tried a case, and it was a, a product liability case against a uh, truck manufacturer, and this didn't have anything to do with anything in the case, but our client put something untruthful on an application years earlier, okay? That was coming in. We knew about it. Address it. Bring it up. Get people talk. If there are people truly on that panel that are going to use that to decide the case, you need to find that out and, and, and get them off. You want to educate the jurors on the good issues, and you also want to educate yourself on the bad issues. I think if it's a trucking case, you, you want to know what people think about big trucks on the road and the highway, Right. Do you feel nervous when you're around them? Do you think truck drivers are good, safe, solid citizens on the road? Or do you think some companies don't train their truck drivers as they should? But again, these are all issues 
that you need to explore with the with the panel. And I think it's all it's all fair game. Just because the jurors know that it's a trucking accident doesn't mean that they've articulated these issues to themselves. If you don't do it, no one might. And so then you have unknown jurors going back into the room, and some of them might harbor that against you. It's so important to do this at Vardar. If you don't do it at Vardar, you'll never get a chance to do it again. And it's, it's up to you because, again, no one else is going to do it if you don't do it. We carry these cases around in our head for years, and we, we are very aware of what the issues are. They aren't. They're blank slates as far as this case. And you're going to learn something, too. I'll give you an example. We, we tried a case involving a professional athlete who was uh, very well-known, very successful, and made a lot of money in, in his career. It was a professional football player, and we knew from our focus groups that one of the main issues in the case was going to be the juror's reluctance to award a large amount of money because they knew this person already had enough money, okay? And, and that was a big issue. It really was, and no matter how we tried to present it, it was going to be a problem for us. And so I spent probably a third of the voir dire just on that issue and heard from every single person in the room on that topic. And the question I asked was something like, who here thinks professional athletes make too much money? And so we did a round of that. And some people were in the middle, and they were articulating arguments that helped us that we hadn't thought about. And they were also saying things that certainly we'd want to know that's how they feel. You know, where there were some people in that room who, who would have great difficulty awarding damages no matter what the instructions were or the facts. But how in the world would you know that unless you identify that issue and bring it up and, and hear what everybody has to say about it. So again, you can't address every single issue in your case with everybody in the room, but you know what the two or three big issues are, and and those you really need to exhaust. You can't spend enough time on them. The alternative to doing what you did is to not bring that up, not talk about leaning various ways about whether professional athletes make too much money. And you can just imagine, if the jurors go back into that deliberation room, someone might blurt that out. I think these guys make way too much money. Like before right. oh, they yeah. even talk about yeah. the case, no question. case is over. Yeah. They're going to talk about those things, whether you ask them or not, and you'd rather have them talk about it when, when you're there to ask follow-up questions and make a record. So, Eric, we've been talking about addressing important issues in your case with the panel in Vordire, and I'd like to get into a couple uh, case-specific examples or types of cases, starting with product liability. One of the issues in a product liability case, a strict product liability case, is crashworthiness. In other words, the vehicle is in an accident or a crash, and the claim is being brought because the, the, the vehicle did not perform sufficiently in the, in the crash. For instance, it may be a weak roof, a seatbelt, airbag, things like that. And I think from experience, those are things you need to address up front with the jury or with the panel because it's sort of a foreign concept to, to lay people. Someone might say, I think the guy who caused the accident is the problem. And we shouldn't even get to the talking about the manufacturer. So it's an important issue to, to let them know that this, this is an issue that needs to be talked about. Another category of case that we see all the time here are medical malpractice cases. And I see people all the time who people have strong feelings about bringing a case against a doctor, a physician, a hospital, a healthcare provider. I mean, do you see that, Eric? Absolutely. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen it in a, a number of cases. People want to believe that their doctor is going to be doing their best for them, and they're more forgiving for mistakes uh, made by a doctor. It just doesn't seem right to be 
biting the hand that feeds you, you know, that someone is trying to heal you, even when that doctor violates a standard of care that everyone out there says you shouldn't violate. I've seen it in focus groups in, in medical malpractice cases where someone will say, well, the doctor did his best. The doctor was doing his best. They didn't intend to harm the plaintiff, which obviously isn't the standard. The legal standard isn't whether or not the physician did his or her best. There are rules, there are standards in the profession that need to be followed. And the question for the jury is whether those rules were violated or not, whether they were followed or not in the particular case, not whether the doctor intended the harm or the doctor. I mean, obviously, if the doctor intended the harm, we'd be talking about a criminal case. It seems to me that if we go back a few decades, there were a lot of lawyers who would cling more tightly on Vordire to the elements of the cases set out by the verdict director. So someone might say, Mr. Simon, you shouldn't be talking about whether the doctor did their best or what the attitudes are about that. That's not really one of the issues. That's not an element in the case directly. But that's the kind of thing that they might go back into that room and someone will blurt that out. I think the doctor did their best, and then all of a sudden you lost the case. Do you find that over the years, as you tried many cases, that you learn these things from jurors talking to them after the cases are over and, and learn some things? Jurors decide cases on things other than merely the facts and the law. They have preconceived notions about stuff, uh, stereotypes at work. It's the biases. It's the built-in biases that we, you know, we try to uh, uncover. And part of it, too, is, is if you think about most people's relationship with their doctor or you know, healthcare provider is a, it's a good relationship. People like doctors. Doctors are there trying to help people who are ill and sick. There's a natural tendency to give the, the doctor the benefit of the doubt. And, and that's why I think overwhelmingly here, at least in our, in our jurisdiction, the vast majority of medical malpractice cases, good cases, screened cases are lost at trial. And, and I think it's because there is a natural bias with people about suing doctors and hospitals. And now, obviously, it's a little bit different if somebody's had a negative or a bad experience with their physician or with a hospital. But overall, people tend to give the benefit of the doubt to the doctor. One of the things I've done in cases, for instance, is I'll compare the medical profession to a different profession. For instance, if an engineering firm designs a bridge and because they were mistaken in the calculations or they screwed up the calculations, the bridge ends up collapsing and, and, and killing a bunch of people. Under those circumstances, would anybody in the room hesitate to hold the engineers and the engineering firm responsible for the collapse of the bridge? Well, everybody would, obviously. And then I'll throw out, well, what if the engineering firm said they, they were doing their very best, right? Would, would that change anything? What if the engineering firm told you, look, we're good engineers and we, we weren't trying to harm anyone? Would that change anybody's opinion? And obviously, people are going to say no. I mean, you either made a mistake or you didn't. You either did it right or you didn't, and you, you are responsible for the consequences. And then I'll bring that into the medical field. Does anybody here think that the situation should be any different for a physician, for a doctor, for a surgeon? Does anybody here think a doctor should be given special treatment or a free pass? And what this does is it points out, you know, it, it brings out that bias of, I think people do give doctors a free pass most of the time. I think in most medical malpractice cases, whether you know you're instructed that way or not, you need to you almost need to show intentional conduct to, to get a verdict in a med mal case. So it is is much much more difficult. And this whole line of questioning for for me is designed to bring that issue at the front and center, so that when they go back in the jury room during deliberations and somebody says, "Well, the doctor 
wasn't doing, didn't do it on purpose. The doctor was trying her best. And you can use this in closing and close too, where you tie it back together and say, that's not the law. The instruction doesn't say that they're not at fault if they tried their best. You heard the evidence of what the standard of care was. And, and what, what you're doing really is leveling the playing field for your, your client by bringing this issue, you know, bringing it out and getting people to, uh, to talk about it. I like asking jurors or panel members, what do you look for? When you're, when you're choosing a doctor for you or a family member? What are the kind of things that you look for? And that will open up a really good discussion. It really tells you what those jurors expect from a doctor, right? It will let you know what standard they will hold the doctor to. As crazy as it sounds, I've had cases where a doctor screws up a surgery and the response from the jurors or focus group will be, well, it was the patient's fault because they didn't get a second or third opinion. Or in other words, it was their fault for going to a doctor who was negligent. Somehow they should have searched around to find somebody who wasn't going to do the surgery in a, in a negligent manner. And, and one question to get at that issue is, who here thinks you should be able to trust? Should you be able to trust your doctor? Period. Should a person be able to trust their doctor? And I've had wonderful, in-depth uh, discussions about that in the middle of Ordire, sometimes going on 20, 30, 45 minutes, and you would be amazed at the information that that elicits. Just doing a whole lot of listening and asking, going down the line and asking people, should you be able to trust your doctor? I think there's a general relationship between those people who say you should be able to trust your doctor, I think, are more inclined to hold the doctor to the standard that the doctor should be held to. I've seen it. I know you've seen it where you offer a topic like that. Should you be able to trust your doctor? And then the conversation that results from that is led by the jurors. You're, you're, you almost step back. You're picking the next person to say something, the next person to say something. And that's a, that's a tremendous advantage to you because you hate to look in any way, shape, or form that you're telling them what to think, you're making arguments. You don't want to do that, and you don't want to have them think that you're trying to lead them in a direction. And it's a great opportunity to let them talk with each other, get all that stuff out, and then you will never be accused of trying to have led them in any direction, but you now have identified lots of people and how they think. Yeah, and I think if you do it right, your position is more of a, a moderator in a debate. I mean, that's when you really got people talking and both sides or multiple sides are being represented in the discussions. And boy, just listening, it tells you a whole lot about the person based on, on what they're saying. How often do you face resistance from your opposing counsel? Mr. Simon is going far afield here. He's talking about trust of doctor. That's not an issue in the case. It's no, no element of the verdict director. Of course, they don't like what you're doing because you're, you're having a robust conversation. You're learning a lot from it. But have you, have you had that where someone objects and says, oh, yeah. we're just and, going and, too you far? Know, you need to be prepared for that. But again, it all comes back to what you're trying to, what is the purpose of this? You're trying to find out if anybody on the panel has a, an express or even a hidden bias against what, what the case is about. If you're at a sidebar and the, your opponent says, well, that's too far afield, I think you have a right to find out how they feel about physicians generally. Right? It's a case where a doctor's being sued. If they hold doctors in such high esteem that they're unable to follow the law or, or apply the facts in the case to that law. The standard is that, you know, holding an opinion or a belief that will unduly influence, that may unduly influence their decision in the case. You need to think through these things and get them talking, 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 and get them to open up. You know, the old days it used to be, well, you don't want to bring this issue up because you might, quote, poison the panel. 
I think that's just ridiculous. Not bringing it up, all you're doing is it's not going to prevent them from bringing it up and, and arguing it back in the jury room when nobody's there to correct them or tell them, you know, I mean, if, if you want to, if, if somebody has very strong feelings about your case, you're not helping yourself by ignoring it. It seems like anything that could kill your case back in the jury room is, should be fair game. I've seen many times jurors, focus group members in a very serious injury case, somebody missing a limb or a quadriplegic, and they, they talk about what's needed, what the person needs, not, not what the, the measure of damage is. There's a big difference between what a person can, can squeeze by on with, with their injuries versus full and fair compensation for what's been taken away from them. And I think that's something also that needs to be explored in, in Vordire. I think it, in any case where you have personal injuries or damages at issue, you need to explore that. For instance, if you have a client who's a quadriplegic, paraplegic, uh, missing a limb, unable to walk, loss of eyesight, both sides are interested in that. Everybody's interested, you know, d- does anybody know someone? Has anybody been in that same position before? Because if they have, I mean, that, that's something that both sides should know about. If you have a case where your client is paralyzed and somebody on that panel has a spouse or, or a family member who's sitting at home paralyzed and have been paralyzed for 20 or 30 years, I mean, that could cut any kind of way. They could say, well, my brother has been paralyzed for 20 years and never filed a lawsuit or never got any money for it at all. I mean, it could be a negative for you. It could be a positive. They could have a, a very good, clear understanding of what that person goes through on a day-to-day basis. But in any event, talk about it. See what they think about it. See what they feel about it. Another issue is punitive damages. If you have punitive damages or the potential of punitive damages in your case, you need to bring it up. You need to talk about it. Some people are hesitant to award punitive damages. You need to explain what they are. Talk about the standard. You don't know in the beginning of your case whether or not you're going to be able to submit on punitives. Maybe. Maybe maybe you know that already. Maybe you don't. So you need to present it in a way where in the event you're not allowed to submit on punitives, you're not penalized by it. The judge in the case may allow you to consider punitive damages at the end of the case, and then that gives you an opportunity to bring them up to the panel and talk to them about what they are, how they work, and what the standard is for for getting them. So in this robust approach to Vordire, where people are putting lots of things on the table, you don't know what the next thing out of a juror's mouth is. And one of those things that should not be an issue is insurance. I'm just curious as to how often someone blurts something out about insurance and what, what do you do to contain it? It's not supposed to be discussed. It's supposed to be very limited. You know, I've had that happen. And it, first of all, in Missouri, we have the ability to ask the, quote, insurance question. Right. And if there's insurance involved in the case, you're allowed to ask the panel. And I think the question is, is framed along these lines. Does anyone here or a member of their immediate family work for or have a financial interest in whoever the insurance company is. And, and now what's required, you need to get uh, pre-approval of that question from the judge before Vordire. But you're allowed to ask that one question, but you know there are restrictions, no follow-up, which half of the time I think you get somebody raising their hand asking a question. And I will either just turn around and look at the judge and have the judge handle it, just literally stop and look right at the judge and not say a word. And I think probably that's the best way to do it. And the judge will comment or tell the person, we're, we're not going to get into that any further. Let's talk about this issue. The amount of money you ask for at the end of the case, right? I mean, there are different categories of damages in cases. Depending on the case, you may have to specify the different categories. For instance, in a medical malpractice case, you have past economic, future economic, past non-economic, future non-economic. 
in a auto accident, truck accident, product case, it's not really, it's not broken down. It's just one line with all the damages on it. But one of the things that you need to consider is preparing the jury somewhat for the amount that you're going to ask for at the end of the case. And if, if you're intending on asking for a significant amount of money, five, 10, $15 million, whatever it is at the end of the case, I think you need to prepare the jury or the panel for that to, to some extent. I know lawyers who will flat out say, we're going to ask for this amount of money at the end of the case. Anybody feel like they're unable to award that amount of money, no matter what the facts are? I don't do that. I don't think I've ever done that with a specific amount. Now, if it's, if it's a life care plan or economic damages, I will give that amount. But the non-economic damages, the damages for you know, pain, suffering, disability, disfigurement, mental anguish, what I try to do is let, let the, the, the panel know that that number is going to be very, very significant. At the end of the case, they have some idea of, of what you're going to ask for. I don't like giving a specific number on the non-economic damages in the beginning in Vordire because I really don't know how the case is going to go. I mean, the case may go a whole lot better than I thought, but I think at some point, what, what I like to do is, is I'll use... Uh, maybe the economic damages, uh, life care plan. And let's say you got a life care plan for six or seven million dollars or ten million dollars. You can say, well, this is part of the damages, but it's not the most significant part. We'll be asking for a very, very significant amount at the end of the case, and at least they're not shocked or surprised by by the amount, whatever it is, at the end of the day. I'm, I'm glad you you threw a number in because those life care plans can be. To, to most people's ears, they will sound like the most significant part of the case. So if you leave that hanging and don't point that out, that there's other aspects of damages, uh, that could leave the wrong, wrong impression. I've had cases where I've been convinced that some of the witnesses, some of the other side's witnesses, aren't being truthful. You know, they're just not being truthful. They haven't been truthful in their deposition testimony. And I anticipate that they're going to come in and not tell the truth at trial. We'll present them with documents, documents with their signature on them, you know, whether they're design documents, marketing documents, and they will take a position at trial and at a deposition clearly contrary to what's right in front of them. And so what you might do to present, highlight that issue a little bit, I've asked jurors in Vordire, does everybody here still think that telling the truth matters? Does everybody still believe that? Anybody think we live in a world now where truth is optional, it doesn't really matter, right? Get them thinking about that a little bit. And does everybody here expect anybody who comes into court and takes the stand and takes an oath, does everybody here expect that person to be truthful and honest when they're testifying? Yes. And, and even in this case, yes. You know, just something a little bit to, to plant a seed so that they're a little more alert to that issue. It makes it a lot tougher for somebody to come in and not tell the truth. They're going to come in and not tell the truth. I want to make that seat a little warmer for them before they get into to do that. We've been talking about issues, addressing important or significant issues in Vordaer. We've, we've covered just a few. There are many, many more. It's really limitless. The issues can vary from case to case, and uh, some of them occur more often than not. But the, the whole idea is if you, get, you have some problem issues, they, they need to be addressed front and center. You need to get them out in the open and get folks talking about them and, and make sure that everybody hears about them before, you know, before Vordire's over. And probably to not go in there with an, any uh, expectation that you're going to be able to control the conversation with any precision, 
you, you have to have some faith in the process that getting it all out is going to be a good thing in the end. It always is. It just let them talk and hear what they have to say. The, the real question is, these individuals who may be on your jury and may decide your client's case, do you want to know what they have to say about some issues in your case or not? You want to know what they have to say. Right. So this concludes our session on addressing issues in Vordier. And this is John Simon. I'm Eric Peeth. And uh, thanks for joining us. And we look forward to having you with us on the next session. John and Eric would like to hear from you. They invite you to email your comments and suggestions to comments at thejuryisout.law. To learn more about the dedicated trial lawyers of the Simon Law Firm, visit simonlawpc.com.